0: Welcome. This is James Corbett of the Corbett Report with your Sunday update from the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. And now for the real news. Pakistani-Canadian Tahawar Rana was acquitted in a Chicago court this week on charges of aiding the 2008 Mumbai massacre, but was convicted on the lesser charge of providing support to a thwarted terrorist plot to attack the offices of a Danish newspaper that printed controversial cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad. He was also found guilty of aiding the designated terrorist group Lashkar-e-Taiba, or L-E-T. The case against Rana, however, was outshone by the testimony of Rana's friend, David Headley, who had already pled guilty to his role in helping to plan the 2008 Mumbai attack, in which 164 people were killed and 308 wounded in a coordinated three-day shooting and bombing campaign. Headley pled guilty to his role in the attacks last March in a Chicago court in a plea deal that spared him the death penalty on condition that he cooperate with U.S. intelligence officials and prosecutors. Although receiving virtually no coverage domestically, the case has been watched closely by the Indian press, which has made much of Headley's testimony that the Pakistani ISI worked with the LET in coordinating the Mumbai attack. First up, let's quickly recap how 2611 plotter David Headley has implicated Pakistan in the Chicago trial which is on right now. First of all, prosecutors have submitted a whole lot of evidence like emails from Headley to his handlers in the ISI. In fact, he has testified to getting help and guidance from two ISI officers and the emails show that they are in constant touch with him and his handlers. One of them is Major Iqbal, identified as Chaudhry Khan, who Headley claims is a 2611 Mastermind and made key decisions. Headley also says he met Major Iqbal several times before the 26-11 attacks, and that terror groups like the LET operated under the umbrella of the ISI. Overlooked by virtually all of the press reports on this case, however, is Headley's documented past as an informant for the U.S. government. Convicted of a heroin smuggling plot in 1997, his co-conspirator was put in prison for 10 years, but Headley served only 15 months In November of 2001, court transcripts show that an emergency hearing was convened to get Hedley's parole cut short in exchange for his cooperation with the U.S. government. Hedley's probation was suspended, and the next month he was sent to Pakistan to continue his cooperation with U.S. authorities. That same month, Lashkar-e-Taiba was designated a terrorist organization by the United States, and two months later, Hedley began training with them. Reporting on the nature of Hedley's involvement with the U.S. in 2010, The New York Times wrote, An examination of Mr. Headley's story shows that his government ties ran far deeper and longer than previously known. One senior American official knowledgeable about the case said he believed that Mr. Headley was a DEA informant until at least 2003, meaning that he was talking to American agencies even as he was learning to deal with explosives and small arms in terrorist training camps. Later in the same article, it was reported, One person involved in the case said, American agencies had zero in terms of reliable intelligence, and it was clear from the conversations about him that the government was considering assignments that went beyond drugs. That Headley went on to plot a spectacular terrorist attack and reach a plea deal with prosecutors after a documented career as a U.S. government agent is, in fact, not a unique occurrence. In 1984, Egyptian Islamic Jihad officer Ali Mohammed was recruited by the CIA to infiltrate mosques associated with Hezbollah in Germany. He later went on to enlist in the U.S. Army. His commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Anderson, believed he was in fact still working for the CIA during his time in the Army, saying, I think you or I would have a better chance of winning Powerball than an Egyptian major in the unit that assassinated Sadat would have getting a visa, getting to California, getting into the Army and getting assigned to a special forces unit. That just doesn't happen. In 1998, Mohammed was arrested in connection with the African embassy bombings of that year. As late as 2006, Mohammed's American wife, Linda Sanchez, had reported, He's still not sentenced yet, and without him being sentenced, I really can't say much. He can't talk to anybody. Nobody can get to him. They have a pretty pretty secretive. It's like he just kind of vanished into thin air." In 2004, Muhammad Junaid Babar was imprisoned in New York after pleading guilty to five counts of terrorism. He had helped us set up the Pakistani bomb-making training camp where alleged London 7-7 suicide bomber Mohammed Siddiqui Khan had trained. Earlier this year, it was quietly revealed that Babar, whose sentence had never been publicly revealed, had in fact only served four and a half years in prison out of a possible 70-year sentence because of what a New York judge just described as exceptional cooperation with the government, which began even before his arrest. The revelation outraged 7-7 victims' family members, who were unaware of the sentence until this year, and are now left with the possibility that Babar was working with the U.S. government even as he was training the alleged 7-7 ringleader that the U.S. press would not be interested in exploring Headley's documented connections to the U.S. government is perhaps unsurprising. The fact that his ties to the ISI are being trumpeted should also come as little surprise, as tensions between Pakistan and the U.S. have risen in recent years, and the allegation of ISI involvement in the Mumbai attack gives the U.S. significant leverage in dealing with the Pakistani government and the billions of dollars in aid the U.S. is now giving Pakistan to assist in the so-called war on terrorism. Late last week, I discussed the case with terrorism expert, documentary filmmaker, and global research contributor Tom Secker. In our conversation, Secker discussed the geopolitical significance of Headley's testimony and what may come about as a consequence of the ISI-Mumbai Massacre link.
1: One of the things that's so abundantly clear from this trial is that Headley's connection to the ISI, and indeed the whole Mumbai plot's connection to the ISI, is being openly admitted and being very much pushed into the me- the mainstream media coverage of this. Um, but the connection between Hedley and the US government has, has barely been acknowledged at all, um, and they're particularly not keen to really answer this question as to was he working for other agencies how long was he working for them you know was he working for them still when he was doing this surveillance and was it part of the mumbai plot um, the other motives at play could be a number of things uh, pakistan has become something of a, a whipping boy in recent years there's any number of events in the last 2 3 years where this The fact that there is Pakistani state sponsorship of terrorism is almost a widely acknowledged fact now. But the question of Western state sponsorship of the same terrorists is still, you know, pooh-poohed and decried as some ridiculous conspiracy theory. So, if there are covert players here, and if there is a hidden agenda here, it's probably the hidden agenda of the West. And it may involve several things. It may involve some kind of flipping of Pakistan from an ally into an enemy, whether that will involve a attempted regime change or an invasion isn't really clear at this point. I think in all likelihood several options are on the table as to quite what they want to do there. Um, It may also be about sort of restructuring Western alliances in the subcontinent. Maybe they've decided India's as a sort of bulwark against China. um, If they can get on side with India Maybe they have a a different ally in that region who is not very friendly with the Chinese and certainly won't want to trade that much with the Chinese, more likely to buy our debt, more likely to buy our products, all the rest of it. Um, So there's several different options here as to what the agenda might be. Uh, But certainly I think there is one.
0: So is there anything else that you think that would be important for the viewers to know about regarding this case?
1: Um. One of the most interesting things is just how much of the primary source material on this case is, has become avail- available, because Rana's initial defense was to try and claim some kind of diplomatic immunity, if you like, saying that he, because of everything he did, he did working for the Pakistani government, that he should be immune from prosecution. And they rejected that defense because they said it shouldn't make you immune from prosecution for crimes against Americans. Um, what it does do is again, implicate the Pakistani government in everything that was going on here. And it meant that the whole thing had to go to trial, which means all of the exhibits, interrogation reports of, of David Headley, um, all sorts of trial transcripts and and, and and the rest of it, the legal documents, are mostly now available. The um, Chicago Tribune filed a request to have lot, an awful lot of them unsealed. So you can go and find these online. You can read almost the entire history of this case. There are still some stuff covered up, obviously. But you can get an awful lot of detail on this case simply just, you know, with Google or Scroogle um, sat at your computer.
0: All of the U.S. v. Rana trial exhibits are available from the justice.gov website. For links to all of the information cited in this report, please see the video transcript at quarterreport.com For more on this story and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to CorbettReport.com.